guys, what's up? Did you notice that I was not around last week? That an episode did not drop last week? Yeah. So, I feel like number one rule of podcasting is great content. Make sure that you have great content. And number two rule is be consistent. If you're going to drop every week, drop every week and make sure that you do something. And I feel like that's a good rule to have because people want to know that they can rely on you and if you don't communicate what's up, then how are they supposed to know? And I totally just let all the balls drop last week and I don't regret it, although it was hard for me to do so. I kind of had to have one of those conversations with myself with like, Rebecca, the world will not end if you don't show up. But I do want to say that I'm sorry and sorry if you guys missed me. I hope you had some content that you could go back and listen to. And I'm sorry that I didn't communicate what was up and where I was at. But this last week has been insane for me. Uh, You know, I just, the baby is home from daycare, which means there is no time for me to record, no time for me to edit. Travis is out of town. And to top it all off, I have some very exciting news, but it was a reason why I was not able to show up last week. And this news I am sharing here first. I am sharing this here first with you all because I have not shared it on Facebook or any of that, just with close family and close friends. So my first public announcement here, but I am pregnant again. So I'm expecting a baby next year in May. And let me tell you something. I know you're not like supposed to tell anyone that you're pregnant when you're in your first trimester because of risk of miscarriage and all of that. But you know, I'm just, I'm 12 weeks along now. So I'm right towards the end of my first trimester and everything has checked out good. So I feel good there, but it's so hard to keep it to yourself when you feel like crap, you're throwing up and you're nauseous and you feel like somebody has shot you with a tranquilizer dart and you have a toddler and you still have to work full time and you have to pretend that you are not an irritable cow even though that's impossible. I'm sorry for my coworkers and all of that because it's been rough. And um, it's just interesting that you can't tell somebody like, hey, I've got this thing going on. Um, And not that you can't, but you know, it's kind of like the social norm or whatever. So the cat's out of the bag now. I got to tell you guys because I'm, I just, I, last week I was like, whatever, these are all the balls dropping and I am, going to embrace this and just not do it. Not do it if I can't do it. And it has been rough. I hope that, you know, the baby can go back to daycare soon. I thought things were going to slow down with work, you know, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So I'm super excited though. I did get an interview in and it was a long interview. So I'm going to break it into two parts. Uh, Lauren Flynn is an adoptive mom. She actually started, you know, fostering and adopting when she was single. Uh, but she does have a partner now who has completely joined the family and joined, um, with her in her adoption journey. But she's incredible because she, uh, 
speaks very candidly about her experience fostering and adopting medically fragile children. She also has experience with transracial adoption and what that all means for her. And she had so many insights on so many things. And she really educated me on some stuff and, you know, just helped me realize my perspective and where there's still biases and where we really aren't showing up as a community and as a society um, and which cultures we perpetuate. So it was just a really great conversation. All right, let's roll into the first part of this interview with Lauren. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community, and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group. Together, we can end the foster care crisis. Thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us on the podcast Uh, I'm so excited that I met with you again. Instagram has been amazing finding people and connecting with the, you know, heroes in the foster and adoption world. So I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us, you know, what led you into foster care and adoption? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I've never done a podcast before, so I hope it comes out well. I love listening to them, but I'm a little nervous because I feel like I'm not going to come across as like, really fun and charming like a lot of my favorite ones do so cool but yours does so hopefully you'll carry the torch for me because yours your episodes are all really good so <laughs> um but and then I also just wanted to say like as sweet as that is to say um in our family we try to stay away from making mom or dad like the heroes of the story although I'm not saying that like you can't say that for anyone else that's obviously you know your choice but like for my personal story I always like to have people focus on the fact that like my kids are the heroes of their story and they're the ones that have been through a lot and, and overcome it. And I, um, am the one that got to choose this and came at it from a place of having a lot of love in my life and support ahead of time. So, um, but yeah, the kids are definitely the heroes for us. And I'm sorry, I uh, already forgot the question a little bit. No, it's (laughs) fine. And I'm actually, I'm actually really glad you made that distinction because I think that there's totally a balance. And I think that there is a, a theme out there. And I know that there's even been commercials that have talked about like trying to t- take that down a notch. Like you don't need to be a hero. You don't need to be this like amazing, like have these superior parenting skills to be able to, you know, make a difference in a child's life. So I feel like that distinction is actually really, really important. And I love that the kids are the heroes. I, and I, you know, I, like to take that more into consideration just because I do on this podcast a lot talk about where we can all be a big deal and that we should believe that we're being a big deal um, in the life of children um, and that we're showing up for our community. 
but yeah, I'm really glad that you made that, that distinction. So yeah, I was just asking what led you to the world of foster care and adoption? Okay. So I, when I was a kid, I was really interested in adoption, specifically adoption first. Um, and I got into the field of working with disabled students in the education system when I was in high school, um, volunteering with my peers at my school. And so through that, I got interested in um, adoption and adopting disabled kids. Um, and so at first, when I was younger, I had this like vision of adopting a kid. I was like thinking about specifically a baby with Down syndrome from another country. And I, didn't, I knew nothing about international adoption not much about Down syndrome other than that I had friends with Down syndrome and they were dope. So I was like, I'll base it off of that. And so, and that's still a great option. But at that, at that age, that was kind of the plan. And I used to dream about that a lot. And then when I got older and kind of like, you know, you take your childhood dreams and you kind of try to place them in the context of your real life. Um, and so I started looking at it and I was like, Oh, international adoptions, $30,000 or more. Oh, I'm going to be a teacher and poor. And so that, and so, um, also, I started researching international adoption. I definitely still think that it can be an ethical option if you are careful to work with the right people, um, especially if you're adopting a disabled kid, because there are so many more kids with disabilities all over the world that are in a true need of an adoptive home, and there's not a lot of competition aspects like there is for some other areas. Um, but I just learned as I got older that um, babies with Down syndrome, that are especially young little babies, are actually not a big need area anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, because so many people are actually interested in that disability area. And we can talk about that more like later on. Um, and so I, my, my interest in it just evolved because um, I really, I wanted to be where the need was. And so when I was in college, I learned about foster care and the need for families to be open-minded to whatever path the child's case may take. And I thought to myself like, okay, I think I'm going to start with that first. You know, it's free to get certified. Um, there's no fees or anything. So I was like, oh, let me do that when I'm younger and, you know, I have no children at all in the home yet and can offer whatever a family and a kid might need. And I, I said to myself, I'll do it for five years. And if I don't have any kids that need adopted, I'll save money during that time and I'll go do international adoption after that. Um, and that was the original plan. And so um, when I was 21, I signed on with my first agency and I started doing foster parenting and the story changed even from there. And so what ended up happening eventually is that um, I had two boys that had a successful reunification, which was great. And then I've done some respite. And then I got my oldest who ended up needing adopted. And then the other two were adopted out of foster care. So, um, so it never did end up happening with international adoption, maybe later. Um, but that's kind of how the story evolved from like a little, a little girl's dream to how it was going to actually look in my life. That's incredible. And do you have a partner? I do now. Yes. So my, my boyfriend came into the picture three years ago. And so we have a sort of like a, we call it blended family, but it's not really cause he didn't have any children. Um, but it was more like dad entered the scene out of order. So I had my boys, um, I had our two older ones were already, um, the oldest was home and the younger, the younger, well, he's a middle child now was in the process of coming home. Um, when we started dating. So he kind of came onto the scene after the fact, but now he's dad and we parent together and live together and everything. But um, I did start out as a single mom. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's interesting to think of entering in at 21 and having such kind of a clear vision for your parenting life um, at such a young age. So I think that's pretty cool. And I, we just had somebody on the podcast that was talking about choosing to foster and adopt while you're 
single and why it's such yeah. a great time to do it because you're not committed in a previous relationship and you have, mm -hmm. you know, your life and your time and your love to give. So, yeah. Well, I think for women too, I always tell my young woman friends, like, unfortunately, this is probably going to get some of your like listeners. You might have to cut it out. I don't know. I'm going to say it. We'll see how it goes. Um, but unfortunately, I think a lot of it being our culture, there's not, in my experience, at least a lot of men in my age demographic kind of sucked. Um, and in general, I think men, um, have a lot of growing to do in terms of like being healthy partners and, um, fathers and everything. And there are great men out there that are, but it's like, it can be hard sometimes out here for the single ladies, you know, trying to find that guy. Um, and so I always tell my friends, like, don't wait, you know, like, I'm so glad I didn't wait for the perfect person. Cause like I did find him and I love my partner, but I am happy that I went ahead and did what I wanted to do. Um, before we met because you can't really think like oh well, I'll meet the perfect guy because it's like you might not uh, you know and so I, I never wanted to put things on hold for that I figured like if it happened it would happen regardless and if it didn't I didn't want to sit around waiting and putting dreams on hold um, for something that wasn't a guarantee you know yeah and the you know I'm doing air quotes perfect guy you know would come along at the perfect time and would take you for everything that you've got going on and your dreams mm -hmm. and everything else too. So yeah, I, um, it, it, it helps does. with the weed. It helps weed out the other ones too. So it's really a positive, like it really helped with dating in terms of like cutting out the, the, the fluff. Absolutely. I can see that you kind of told us about your, why you chose to go into foster care and that it was really clear for you. So what were your hopes and expectations like, and how did that differ from reality? From how it actually went. Yeah. So if I'm being honest, I definitely had some unhealthy expectations out of foster care in the beginning. And um, it's hard for me to even remember now because I've learned so much, but if I really try to dig back to how it was, so I had that five-year goal and I thought like, and I would tell people like, oh yeah, like I'll adopt if it happens. But like, you know, like I just want to help and like, you know, I'll have this other route if, um, if adoption doesn't happen by the time I'm like 25, because 25 is the minimum age for international adoption. That's why I was like, had that cutoff time or whatever. Um, and so, and now I think back and I'm like, okay, you were being silly. Um, so I really, I had like a vision of, I was open to disabled kids. I, I, I don't like the term special education teacher, but I am technically a special education teacher. I'm a teacher that works with um, disabled students. And so I, I was open to disabled kids in foster care. And I was picturing getting a very young, like a baby with a disability that I had a lot of experience with, like Down syndrome or cerebral palsy. Like I was picturing like um, that the baby would be like really easy and sweet. Mm -hmm. And one of those disabilities that everyone's like, Oh, like I had some unhealthy ideas about just disability and um, just that whole world. And so that was what I was picturing, honestly, like I thought I'd get this disabled baby, they would never go home. And then we'd have this beautiful open adoption. Like I, I, I really, that was the vision in my mind. And now that I think back, I'm like, that's pretty gross. Like, first of all, just because even if I had gotten a disabled baby, like, why wouldn't the mom be able to get them back? Like, I don't know. It was weird. Like, I had these ideas that, like, I don't know. I just thought it was a very high chance that I would end up with a forever kid that would fit all the boxes of how I pictured them being. Mm. And actually, the photo challenge I'm doing for National um, Adoption Awareness Month, um, it's the Knee to Knee Challenge. And so it's, it's run by a birth mom. But um, the, the prompt for today is expectations. And I haven't really worked out what I want to say yet. But I think it's a great prompt because, yeah, like, I had all these weird expectations. Like I had very specific expectations of how I thought it was going to go. And it did not, it did not go that way. I ended up getting a nine-year-old and five-year-old brothers and they had 
um, disabilities that I had no experience with. The youngest had autism, which I had very minimal experience with. Um, and then the older one had uh, intellectual disabilities, but also just really severe trauma and attachment stuff. And so I am so glad I got that experience and parenting him really made me such a better person and a better parent. But at the time it was harder for me because I was like, oh, like little wheelchairs and like, you know, down syndrome and stuff like that. That's cute and easy, but like behavioral issues where you're getting like hit and spit on, it's like not. And so it was a lot different, but you know, I wouldn't change it. And it definitely opened my eyes a lot to, to so many things. And so um, I, now I try to talk to new people about it and be like, listen, like your child is not like, like kids, these kids don't come into these situations to kind of fill a suit of clothes that you've made in your mind. Um, and then also just the fact that um, trauma affects kids in such a way that they're going to be acting out in ways that you might have not prepared for. And it's not going to be cute. And it's not going to be like, oh, poor thing. Like, it's actually going to be really difficult for everyone. But that doesn't mean it's not a good thing to do. It just means that we need to really think about what we're expecting out of the child before they come into our home. That was a long answer. But yeah, so basically my expectations were a lot different than what happened. But I'm really glad that our story went the way it did. And I learned a ton from the first family that I worked with and from those two brothers um, that made me a better person and a better mom. Yeah. I mean, I think that you bring up a good point where a lot of times, so it's funny because I've talked a few times on this podcast about some placements saying they're like therapeutic placements, meaning that they're, I guess that they have more trauma training and other placements are just placements. And I'm thinking like everybody needs trauma training and everybody needs to understand that. But mm-hmm. you're right that like I, my mind, it's so funny, like different perceptions um, because my mind was like, uh, physical disabilities would be, um, or disabled children in any capacity would be more difficult was like in my brain, but yeah, everybody thinks that, (laughs) but you're right that it's like, well, um, a disability where somebody could look like, Oh, you know, this, it might present as not as, um, aggressive or defiant or as, um, off-putting as some of these trauma responses. Yes. And that's a big thing that I advocate for in the foster care adoption communities. Cause I've met a lot of sweet people who just maybe aren't really prepared to take on some of those more severe trauma behaviors yet, or they like don't want to, which I mean, eh, I have some feelings about, but it's like, if you're not prepared to take it on, don't, but then they'll be like, well, where's that leave us if we want to adopt a waiting child? And I'm like, you really should look into disabilities and physical disabilities because yeah, it does. I mean, I'm not saying a physically disabled child can't also have those things, but it does, it presents differently. And depending on the disability type, it's less common. And so I do think people need to be more open-minded to that area because people think that that is so much harder, but I'll tell you, I've had five boys and my, my little guy that's in a wheelchair who has a lot of people might consider him like the most limited of the children that I've raised is as hands down the easiest. I mean, mm. by far. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely that mental health piece is I think the most demanding of, of your like parenting and of your soul than any other need that's out there. Yeah. Well, and as far as the community and how we view, you know, helping people and how we view accommodations, I feel like we see somebody in a wheelchair or with severe physical disabilities and we go like, sure, how can we help? Obviously they can't X, Y, and Z and we're going to jump in. Whereas a kid that presents as a very sharp 12 year old, but is developmentally four, um, we just don't have the same empathy. 
Yes, we exactly. And there's a lot less resources. So like with my first two, um, gosh, my, my little guy, the older brother is still, I, I love him so much. And I will always, he just taught me, I mean, he made me mom, like the, the younger brother did too, but that older one from that first sibling set, like he just, he made me really stand in my convictions. Like he made me live out the things that I had talked about and like have some really tough conversations with myself and like it because he, he was walking through a lot and with mental health with him, like he and I spent many tearful nights at the ER or I'd be in the waiting room and he'd be, you know, in the ER a lot. And there was nothing for him. Like they would just be like, well, if he's harmful to himself or others in the home, I guess you can, you know, he's calm now, take him home. And I would drive home sobbing. He'd be asleep in the back seat. I mean, there was nothing like they just, they don't have anything for you when there's that severe mental health piece. And so that was a really harsh introduction into the world of like, I thought I knew like, okay, disability, like I know all the services out there for that. And and we did get a lot of those hooked up for him. But in terms of that mental health piece, there was nothing really. I mean, there was a few things, but not anything like you would think. So yeah, the wraparound support is just not there in so many ways for mental health. Yeah, it reminds me, I, I used to work in Vermont and a lot of my cases were very rural and they would, I, I had one family that would call emergency services. They had a crisis line for mental health for one of their children that had been adopted, uh, but they would call crisis. And by the time we arrived, it was an hour and 15 minutes later and the kid was watching cartoons and eating cereal almost every time. And we were like, this kid's mm-hmm. fine, <laughs> you know? And they're like, they needed it was very hard for them to document in real time with service providers what was going on because mm-hmm. it just took too long for anybody to get to them. And then the, the options weren't great. Like, you know, do you want to commit him to, you know, to psych services or, and they didn't know right. that that would be good with trauma, you know, having him be removed yet again and have to be somewhere mm-hmm. outside of his home. So it was like, that was kind of the only option that they were presented. Yeah. Well, and there's no short-term beds. I think we got it overnight, like once or twice when we really needed it. But like, um, I ended up having to do a sit-in at our local County for that one son of mine. Like he just really needed, um, like medication support, which I'm a huge, like, I'm very cautious about medication support for my kids, but this guy just really, really needed something to help him be more regulated throughout the day. Um, really badly. And they kept saying, we'll get it. We'll get it. He was on a wait list for a psyche valve for like probably six months. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew the county had their own psychiatrist that they would, you know, deploy at will if they needed something for paperwork. And so I dropped him off at school the day after an ER meltdown where we'd been up until three in the morning at the ER. And I remember like putting my hands on his shoulders and just being like, listen, I'm going to talk to some people about getting you some help. I just need you to make it through today at school because he really struggled to make it through the day at school without having to like get picked up when he was in these types of moods and he was like, okay. And I went to the County and I told them, you know, I'm so-and-so's foster mom. I need to speak to the supervisor of our case. He needs a psychiatric appointment this week. And she was like, nobody gets same week appointments. And like, you don't even have an appointment with the supervisor, like leave. And I was like, no, I'll be here until I can talk to her. Thank you. And I sat down and I was there for about two hours and then she came out and we got the appointment that day. So, but it was really, it was shocking the amount of like, pushback I got from everybody on every level, doctors, social workers, everyone, like nobody wanted to help him. Like there wasn't, if we could even have gotten like a three day inpatient where like I could visit him during the day and they could start him on a new med and see how he did like stuff like that, or just to get that psych eval done. But the ER would just be like, no, we're just going to let him tear up a, a room with a doctor holding him down until he calms down and then we'll send him home. Um, and then the county would be like, eh, you can wait on this list for six months. And so it's just, it was shocking 
the delays to him getting the help that he needed. Yeah, you're reminding me about the sh uh, short-term bed crisis because I I do remember that even when the options were yes, let's let's get him a bed, there weren't beds even in the there neighboring aren't. states. I mean, and so it yeah. was maybe a month wait to get in, three month wait to get in, even. And it's like, what are families to do when it's it's the whole point is that it's a crisis right then. It's an immediate need, or even like in-home care providers. We ended up getting a great. We got a loophole with DD services, developmental disability services, where we got these two play therapist girls and they were like my Lord and saviors. Oh my gosh, I loved them. Um, and they got, I think I, it was so limited. I got like five hours a week for the older one. Funny, the younger one was doing a lot better and more stable, but he got 15 hours a week because he had a diagnosis of autism. So it's not fun. It's not based on like what they actually need. It's based on like the label that they have. Um, and so, but the ladies would come out, um, and they did like one set session a week where they would plan to come out for two hours. And then we left the other hours for the older one open and they, I could call them. And so that was huge. Cause it was like, sometimes I just needed an extra person who wasn't so close to the situation um, who could just talk to me and talk to him and be an extra body to keep everyone safe for a couple hours. till he deescalated. And so we did get that awesome service and we did eventually get in-home therapy. And so our in-home therapist would often get on the phone with me or come out and meet us wherever we were at. Um, and so that, that did eventually get set up and was very helpful, but it was just crazy. The amount of, of like struggle that it took for me to get him those services. I mean, I had to email and call and beg and hustle and beg the caseworker to sign things. And it took months and months. And so that part's also really hard when you've got a child that is really struggling and you're having to work and also do the side hustle of <laughs> getting them their services. So it was a real fight. It was a real fight, but he prepared me so much. And to this day, I've never I don't think I've ever had a more challenging child, but um, I, I'll never regret having parented him because, I mean, I learned a ton and he's doing great now. So it was, it was an awesome experience overall. That's awesome. I don't know this, but I feel like through all the work that I've done and all the connections I've made with foster and adoptive families, it's rare that they go into it thinking, I would like to foster or adopt a medically fragile child. I know that plenty of them do go on to do that because they're not, you know, they're open to whatever child comes their way. But in your experience, just tell us like what, first of all, what is medically fragile? Like what's mm -hmm. the difference between medically fragile and there's, there's developmental disabilities, there's physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities. So yeah, what's your experience with medically fragile children and is there like additional training or additional services and what has your been been your experience with that for people that may be going into foster care mm -hmm. adoption so i will say you said like oh but people are usually open to whatever comes their way i will say that that has not been my experience at all i feel like there are some people that um are very vocal about their wonderful experience with their kid myself included and that's great but i will say like in the general population my, my people in like support group and my local foster parent friends are like, you are throwing us under the bus right now. And I'm like, kind of, I've been bugging you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I love them. But in the general population of foster parents and hopeful adoptive parents, um, very, very few people are open to any type of disability, medical or not. And so like we've had some really direct experience with that. So like our youngest son, for example, he was four when his referral came into our agency, which has at least 150 families, and they have a focus on adoption. They have an infant program. They have an adoption program for waiting kids in foster care. So they have a lot of families that aren't just foster parents, but are looking for an adoption situation specifically. Uh, and a, a lot of people, as you probably well know, 
that cutoff age of five is big right now. So a lot of people are like under five, under five, or even like under two. That's like their big thing, um, which is another topic. But when his call came in, they put it out to everybody on the, in their group that would, had a home study that would fit his needs, which they didn't tell me the number, but from the people that I know, I, I know it was a small number. I, I've, I heard from a few friends in the agency that they also got the email that we got. And out of the group of, gosh, maybe 10 or 25 families that got the email about him, it was me and our other friend that said they would look into it, be interested. Um, two families out of 150 plus families um, that were willing to even get more information. Um, my other friend has a lot more little ones in her home. And so when they heard we were interested, they went ahead and backed out. So we ended up being his only option out of almost 200 people. And mind you, at that point, he had bottomed out of two other pre-adoptive homes who thought like, oh, autism, we can, eh, we'll figure it out. Like he's small and cute. And no, like he ended up leaving their home within two weeks. They disrupted him both times. So that that's a little boy in Ohio. He had one option, us, one. Um, a couple months after he came home, another call came in for a five-year-old boy with autism. Um, and that call went around the whole county and the whole state of Ohio. He was coming from Cleveland even. So that came all the way down to us. We obviously couldn't take him. We just got our four-year-old. Um, no one else in our entire agency would take him. Um, he ended up starting kindergarten in a group home, and now he's on Adopt US Kids waiting for a home here in Ohio. So yeah, um, autism and cerebral palsy, it doesn't matter if it's medical or not. If it's a disability, it's usually, this sounds like hyperbole, but in my experience, it's the kiss of death for kids. Like mm -hmm. they don't get a home if they have that. And so no, I don't think a lot of people are open to whatever God has for them or whatever. They say they are, but they really aren't because I have literally watched kids' file be bounced around our whole agency multiple times and have everyone say no. I've called people that I know and been like, please consider it. So-and-so said they're really great. I'm open to helping you and had people literally tell me like, yeah, no. Um, so, and I love you guys. It's okay. You have to do what's on your heart. I, I'm not saying you personally, whatever friend is listening to this, I still love you. But I do think people's minds are very close to it um, as like a community for foster care and adoption, which is really sad. Um, and so for medical needs, it's really in Ohio, at least, it's not super specific. The therapeutic uh, level, like licensing process, kind of mixes everything together. So we do have that here too. Like you mentioned, we have traditional foster care, therapeutic homes. Um, and I agree with you. I think everyone should be therapeutic. Our agency, which is awesome. I love them so much. They make everyone get therapeutic and they can't make them, but they basically are like to work with you. We really, we don't, we're not going to place with you if you're not if you don't do the extra training. Um, and some people gripe about that with our agency and they're like, oh, other agencies don't make you do the additional 40 hours. And I'm like, yeah, well, you're going to need them. So <laughs> you should stop complaining. Um, and so therapeutic for where we live, it's a major uh, city in Ohio, um, is uh, basically like any anything that's like extra label. So like extra diagnosis. So that can cover anything from like diabetes, which is like more medical to like uh, PTSD and anxiety to like, uh, G tube or a tracheotomy. So like a breathing tube. So it, but the levels are where it kind of comes into play. So like a level one is usually like either a mild medical need, um, that's easily managed or a mild behavioral need that's pretty well managed. And then level two, you get into like more permanent diagnoses or like mental health stuff that's, you know, needs a lot of care day to day. And then level three would be like, um, my son who has cerebral palsy was be a level three. He has a G tube to eat and stuff like that. He's in a wheelchair. Um, and level four is where you get into kids that, um, that's where you see a lot of like traumatic brain injury kids, which is an area of foster care. I think a lot of people don't think about, I have a good friend who actually has two of these babies and one of them sadly passed away recently. But, um, unfortunately 
due to the prevalence of, of uh, physical abuse and how that can affect babies, there is a high population in the foster care community of babies and, and they, if they get older to be kids um, who have sustained a traumatic brain injury purposely. So someone has abused them so, so severely that their brain is injured. Um, and so those babies um, typically end up as level fours. And, there's, and so that would be like your babies with a severe TBI that might not be able to breathe on their own that are in a wheelchair or maybe a baby that had um, a, a disability that involved a lot of areas of their life. So mm -hmm. that's, so that's how we do it here in Ohio. Um, and so we are licensed for whatever we have the therapeutic license and um, I have always been open to taking, I have, and then my partner and I, when we're parenting together have always been open to taking whatever level of need. And so they know that when they call us, um, you know, that we're open to that. I hope that kind of makes sense and answer yeah. your question. Is there additional, so I hear that there's additional training. Um, is there additional support? So there's additional training. The additional training isn't even that great. I, I have to say our agency is trying really hard to revamp their training. And I think they're doing an awesome job of trying. And there are a couple outside agencies here that do a pretty good job. But our training is pretty typical of what I think a lot of people complain about is in terms of like even the extra training you get is not very good. <laughs> it's a little all over the place. Um, there's not a set curriculum of topics. Um, and there's no training about like physical disabilities or diagnoses. There's maybe a few like autism specific that I've seen, but there's no training being like, here's how to do a G-tube. Here's how to do a tracheotomy. Here's what you do if your kid has medical needs. Here's the local hospital connections. Like there's nothing like that, but you, there is additional training, but it's not super applicable to disabled kids. Um, and then as far as additional support, in our area, there actually is a ton, and I think in most areas, and one really sad fact that I wish would change is there's a lot more support for a child adopted out of foster care or who's actively in foster care who has these types of disabilities than there is for a biological family with a child that mm -hmm. has that or even an internationally adopted child. So for example, like I have a friend that I just met on Instagram whose daughter has very similar needs to our son, um, and she has to fight tooth and nail. They have, they're paying, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars out of their private insurance. She's begging their County to give her daughter Medicaid. And it's, it's a very back and forth thing and I'm not sure they're going to get it. So like, even if you have a biological child or a naturally adopted child with disabilities, Medicaid's not guaranteed in our country for disabled kids. And if your private insurance doesn't cover a lot of what they need, um, you're basically screwed. Um, but for kids in foster care, they all get Medicaid. And so that is a huge, huge win. I mean, that means like, your wheelchairs, your tubing, your but your diapers that show up on our porch every month for our son, like that's all free. You never have a copay for any of that. It's just covered, nothing to worry about. You don't have to apply for Medicaid and fight for them to get it. They already have it. They keep it post adoption. So that's a huge support area. Um, if you live by a local children's hospital or even like within driving distance, that's always great because then your specialists and everything are just right there. We live right next to one, like literally five minutes away. So that's a huge win for us with that. Um, and then your local counties will have some level of financial support to cover extra needs, but it really did. That is a crazy disparity because it's literally so different depending on what county you live in, even in the same area. So we just got a waiver for our son through our county and it's going to cover $7,000 a year of specialized childcare and it can cover, there's $7,000 every three years. So total for the three years, that's a separate pot for equipment and like home modifications. Mm. And so we're really excited about that. We can't wait because that's going to mean that like, um, he can have more specialized care. I can hire people to come and do outings with us. Now that we have our younger son, it's going to be a little trickier. Like when we can do things post COVID, like my, my 11 year old is a little bit heavier now. And so like 
now we'll be able to get aids. So like if dad's not coming with me to somewhere, like if we're going to the park, like I can have somebody to come and help me get him in and out of his chair for the swing or whatever. Um, and then also it'll help with things like ramps on our house and stuff. So we do have the county level support does vary though. So I don't want to ever just tell people like, Oh, it's amazing. Cause it just depends on where right. you live. And it took me, um, Julian's been adopted for two years. So, or he's been home for two years, adopted for a year and a half. And so it took me, um, like a long time, like multiple years to get him in with the County and then get the waiver. So, I mean, it's like the support is there. There is a level of hustle that you have to do to get it. Um, but some supports really are a given. I mean, the Medicaid thing is huge. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think the support is there. Um, the only thing that starts to get tricky that I will tell people to consider their lifestyle is, um, the one type of demographic that we haven't been open to yet because we just don't have the flexibility needed is a child that has a high levels of oxygen dependency or a tracheotomy. Sometimes they can't go to public school. And I think that's horrible and it definitely needs to change. It's absolutely criminal. But basically like if your kid has oxygen levels that are high or needs suctioning through their breathing tube um, frequently throughout the day, even like in our area where we have specialized schools for kids like Julian who are in a wheelchair, um, they will say like, okay, so if your kid's on a certain number of suctions per day or a certain level of oxygen, they can't come to school all. And they get like two hours of in-home instruction and that's it. And so like that gets tricky if you're a working family with two working parents. Um, you can sometimes get enough nursing hours through Medicaid to have childcare, but it really depends. Sometimes, depending on your kid's health, they won't allow you to leave the home if the nurse is there. So that just gets really tricky depending on the area that you live in. And so that's the only area where I think people have to think about their career and lifestyle. But pretty much, I would say any other disability that's not breathing related, not high levels of oxygen dependency, um, you know, you can work, you can work full time out of the home. There's programs for childcare, there's resources. I don't, I don't think that it's really a lot more hard. I think it's just a lot different and it's new to a lot of people. guys i hope that you enjoyed that super down to earth interview with lauren like i said we're actually going to break this into part one part two but just so you know lauren actually is the author of the blog foster adoptive mom so go check her out that is fosteradoptivemom.com i absolutely love how real she is and how introspective she is she does a lot of looking at herself and kind of evaluating what dynamic she's bringing to the table and she has no problem going back and kind of criticizing herself which we always talk about how you know none of us know necessarily what we're doing and certainly when we're first starting in something so it's just really interesting to see how many people are willing to go back and kind of help us learn through the lessons that they have learned but but also let us know that the way that we think and the way we feel is okay as well because they may have felt and thought those things too. So uh, it has a real normalizing property to it and all of our introspective work and us going back and saying, listen, I used to think this, I totally get it, this is why I think this now, I think is really helpful for us. All right guys, tune in next week for part two.